One thing I can't get enough of as a people leader is feedback. Do you love feedback as much as I do? If so, please consider writing a review of All Hands and rate us wherever you listen. analogy of almost like an immune system the team you could feel was healthy and then when something went off you could really feel that there was like something in the system that was wrong and had to be addressed and and then you get to the point where you scale beyond that and you realize actually this immune system is no longer in my in my hands anymore and you know and, and so I think that those experiences were really important in my evolution as a leader of teams welcome to all hands by lattice where we believe that people strategy is business strategy. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. For the last decade, I've been a people and culture executive at some of the internet's most beloved startups, but my fascination with building true people-first cultures started many, many years ago. From film to tech and a few interesting layovers in between, the one common denominator remains. I am most passionate about enabling people through belonging to create beautiful, innovative products. On all hands, I talk with CEOs and other C-level leaders about how being a people-first company is a strategic advantage. Join us while we chat with these top leaders about how a people-first approach isn't just good for people, it's good for business too. Today, we're talking with Scott Belsky, Chief Product Officer and Executive Vice President of Creative Cloud at Adobe. Scott has led a fascinating career. He's an entrepreneur, early stage investor, advisor, author, and father of three. But at his core, he is the creative industry's commander-in-chief, having co-founded the creative platform Behance back in 2006. Scott would go on to author two national best-selling books, Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle. In 2010, Behance was acquired by Adobe, where Belsky joined the executive ranks for over three years. Benchmark Capital lured him away to be general partner for some time, but he eventually made his way back to Adobe, where he continues his advocacy for technology and community initiatives that empower creative people and help businesses leverage the creative potential of their teams. Today, we get the opportunity to dive a bit deeper into Scott's people philosophies and how creativity may just be the key to unlocking company culture. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So now your career arc has been shared many a time out in the world, but I'd appreciate it if you could share just a little bit about your background and and where you are today, please. Sure. Well, uh, I uh, started off as an entrepreneur uh, starting a company called Behance with the mission to help organize the creative world at work. And that was a a, a journey. Uh, It was five years of being a bootstrapped company, almost two years as a venture-backed business, uh, then getting acquired by Adobe coming in and taking over uh, a number of the parts of Creative Cloud, the mobile products, the services, basically things beyond the flagship products themselves. Then uh, after about three years, spent some time being an investor, then realized how much I missed being an operator and building products and especially being just part of this transformation in the creative world these days as more people want to have the tools and the skills. And so came back to Adobe in this uh, role as chief product officer. So overseeing all of our creative products and services and really trying to chart the course for the future of creativity. You talked a little bit about what inspired you to build Behance from the beginning, but what were some of your core principles going into that as an entrepreneur? What were some of the things that, that helped drive that mission and vision forward for you? I think I oscillated at the time between being passionate for the solution that I felt the creative community needed versus making sure that I had a really, you know, great sense of the problem and the 
kind of the empathy, you know, for those suffering the problem. You know, we, we had one focus group in the history of Behance where wow. we brought a small group of creatives into the room and said to them, well, you know, do you need a, a portfolio platform to showcase your work? And we described what we were doing. Universally, everyone said no. And uh, we were like, really? Uh-oh. And yeah. the answers were, well, we have MySpace, we have Facebook, we have LinkedIn. We don't need another place to put up our work. You know, and that was one of those moments where I realized we were doing it all wrong. We actually had to be asking the question as to what they were struggling with. You know, what was really keeping oh. people up at night? And it was, well, I never get attribution for my work. My portfolio site is always out of date. And the only people that ever visit it are people that already know me. So it's not right. really serving as the lead gen, lead generation, you know, source that I need. My work is always ripped off with ever, without any link back. Right. And also really, you know, I have no place to see what all of the creatives that I'm friends with, that I work with, I have no place to go see what they've done most recently. Yeah. And, you know, kind of the list went down and we realized, okay, actually they do need a network for creative professionals. It's just one of those things where no one knows what they need. And so that was, that was very informing of how we would build the business, which was to be shoulder to shoulder with our customers and really, you know, build the product based on empathy. Did you feel like the product helped shape your internal culture in that way? It did. We always had an office with, with members of Behance coming in. Um, people from other parts of the world, when they would come to New York City, they would just swing by Behance. And we were trying to build a community by offering a really undeniable sense of utility to our yeah. early customers. And then we were trying to build on top of that something that kind of surprised people in unexpected ways. So as you're, you're building the company internally, let's turn the lens inside. How many people at the time of acquisition did Behance actually have employed full-time? So at the time of acquisition, we probably had around 30 or so people. I always tried to uh, keep the team super, super small. And really just, if you have people and really capable people and really scalable processes, you actually don't need to throw people at a problem in order to scale. And I'll tell you, there's this ongoing debate of whether it's healthier to have a team that is more like a sports team or more like a family. And there are distinct differences in both and how you want to manage and build a team going forward. For us, we had to stick together long enough to figure it out. The Behance journey was one that included a few years of sideways motion. There were a couple of, we'll call them lost years of Behance in terms of what, you know, what was possible. And, um, and so we had to make sure that we had the, uh, the culture that just kept people together, even when there was no sort of light at the end of the tunnel uh, and no clear sense of reward. Something that I think I've discovered over time is that you can take a different approach or you can take different parts of each of those models at, at different phases of a business life cycle. And something that I personally really love about the building phase of, of a company is that family phase when you're small and you have no choice but to know everything about everyone and, and be intimately involved with, with these people and their families and their partners and their friends uh, because you are building together. And, and as a CEO or as a founder, you are, you are asking so much of them. Uh, and you you do wind up deeply, deeply caring about them. Um, that's not to say performance should not be involved at all. Yeah, I think it's a good insight, actually, that maybe there's different periods of a business where you're more like one or the other. And, and probably also the answer is it can't be on one on either end of the spectrum. You have to kind of be in the middle. The truth, though, is that you can't have a high-performing team and keep them if you have some see players around because totally. we're only as strong as the person who is... Uh, you know, who, if, you're, if you have someone who's not doing the work that they need to be doing, everything kind of crumbles. 
Absolutely. And especially on a small team that is so amplified. Um, you know, so we, if you're a team of 30 being acquired by a much, much larger organization, uh, I'm sure that everything is amplified. Now, what were some of the most precious things about the Behance culture that you knew you wanted to take with you when you were going into the Adobe biosphere? Well, I think we had a deep connection to the creative community. And I think that's actually one of the things that Adobe found most attractive about our team. And in fact, a lot of the people that did stay for many years uh, and are still, you know, at, at Adobe are kind of the, the carriers, you know, of some of this. And we had two people actually who stayed for two or three years, left, and then came back. You know, if that's any indication of the type totally. of culture that we we had built, I think there's also, of course, we were a services organization that was driven on Mao and engagement and like certain metrics that. We were very native to us, but but Adobe had transitioned from a software to a services business, and in some right. ways, we're still developing those motions of how to how to build a um, really healthy, engaged offering. So there were so there were a bunch of things we, we we brought with us like that, as opposed to a lot of Silicon Valley companies that buy a company and say, "Okay, forget everything you knew. Like here's what you're going to do now." Adobe was very much the opposite. You know, we 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 buy companies. We say, "What can we learn from them?" That's and how awesome. can they change us as a business? You have written so much and you are so prolific in helping bridge the gap between creatives and, and business and really trying to create this, this space of innovation. And a lot of it comes through in, in language around people practices and philosophy, how to build teams, hiring, all of these things together. They, they really, for me, are, are behavioral studies or, or pattern matching that you've developed over time. When do you think you started listening to those questions in your own self? Like, when did you start paying attention to those patterns? When did you start assessing and, and looking at wanting to articulate what culture was or how people were operating together and the impact to business? Hmm, interesting. I, mean, I would say there are two, you know, two things really come to mind. So one is my job right out of college. Uh, I went and worked of all places at Goldman Sachs, you know, in a finance function and and really hated it. You know, every day felt like a monotonous waste yes. of my energy and potential. And so I was maybe a year and a half into that, and I was really ready to just bounce and do something completely different. And then I went to my manager, and she said to me, well, if there were one other job at the firm that you would want to have, what would it be? And I said, well, it'd be really interesting to learn how things are run, like how leaders are identified, succession planning. And I got lucky because... Uh, a guy by the name of Steve Kerr, not the basketball coach, but another one who had worked <laughs> under Jack Welch at GE for many years, building Crotonville, which was their kind of leadership development yeah. institute. He had been hired by Hank Paulson, the CEO at the time of Goldman, to run a small team in the executive office focused on exactly this, succession planning and leadership development, uh, and almost like some management consulting type stuff for the firm and for key clients as well. And so I interviewed for this team and it was a tiny team. I was the most junior member of it. And from that moment forward, I had a three-year education uh, on leadership development. And so that period was a really great education for me. I became very convinced in the, you know, in the experiential education that employees have to have and the, the necessity for people to be stretched the chemistry of what makes co-headships work and not work and partnerships fail and whatever. And then taking all that, you know, the second thing that comes to mind is just Behance and cultivating a team from zero Yeah. and picking uh, Matthias, who became, uh, ultimately became a co-founder level 
partner of mine, but for a while, while I was tinkering with this idea, it was just a freelancer designer that I was hiring. And then we, we built a team. And I really just trying to go through the different phases of a team's growth. Like you first think you're going to be able to control everything. Mm-hmm. And I liked to use the analogy of almost like an immune system, the team you could feel was healthy. And then when something went off, you could really feel that there was like something in the system that was wrong and had to be addressed. And, and then you get to the point where you scale beyond that. And you realize actually this immune system is no longer in my, in my hands anymore. And, you know, and so I think that those experiences were really important in my evolution as a leader of teams. I think the immune analogy is totally spot on here. One way that companies track the health of their culture as they scale is through engagement surveys. Having a pulse on the sentiment of your teams allows you to quickly identify which areas of the system need immediate attention. They won't be perfect, and they're just one piece of the puzzle. But consider engagement surveys a diagnostic tool to help your leadership and HR teams know exactly where to focus. At what point do you feel, just from... from your your background and your history, not only of managing and running your own companies and teams of teams within larger organizations, but from an investor perspective, uh, what is the advice that you give to some of your founders around like when when they might need to start letting go or when they they need to start transitioning from fingers in every pot and having that that direct pulse to like I need to trust my team or I, I look to other measures to understand the health of my organization. Well, it's a great question because I hear from a lot of founders who tell me. We're growing our business now, and so these are all the people we want to hire ahead of this, ahead of that. And uh, and sometimes the founder is an incredible product mind, just an amazing product right. thinker, and he or she wants to hire ahead of product. And I'm like, why do you want to do that? I mean, that's the one thing that you can do better than anyone else in the world. Why would you want to abstract yourself in any way, shape, or form from that part of your business, you know, in the foreseeable future, or maybe even ever? Yeah, and it's. You know, and on the other hand, things like finance operations or whatever that you're not the best in the world at, by all means, you know, hire people and delegate it away and know what the questions are you need to ask and, um, and, and take, it, take it at that point. So I, I actually think that it's, it's a very personal question, right? What is it that you think you're the absolute best at that you need to be right front and center, you know, at the contributor level? in your business and then everything else, you know, you need to uh, abstract yourself from at some point. Are there any like core principles that that you are like, these are my tried and true, no matter where you go as a leader, you are most certainly going to bring these people practices with you. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a number and they're all in different categories of, you know, hiring people, developing people. How do you lead people towards both a flag planted as well as the road, you know, the road building it takes to get there. What is the importance of narrative? Importance of narrative and merchandising that narrative over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. There's just so much research that suggests that progress begets progress, and when you feel you're making progress, you know you're more motivated to do the things to continue it, and and that involves a lot of uh, recitation and a lot of kind of helping people know where we are, where we've been and where we're going. Right. And, and I, over the years have tried to be very creative in how we do that. I feel like there's this hundreds of billions of dollars spent every year on creative marketing to get people to do things, to get us to change our behaviors. Why aren't we using some of those same tactics to get our team and ourselves to do things on a daily basis that matter? 
And it's like billboards in the right. office. Like, why isn't the office filled with billboards of things that matter? I mean, it doesn't totally. make any sense, right? Why should any wall be bare if in the if if on you know the main highway every every wall is plastered with an advertisement? The other thing I would say is I really really subscribe to the idea of being very pragmatic and paranoid about the present, but being very optimistic about the future. Yes. And making sure that every meeting and every, you know, interaction sort of incorporates both. Absolutely. And, you know, and that means always kind of being very like down to earth and saying, hey, this is not going well. Like we're not making enough progress. We're falling behind. This is what the competition's doing. This is what we're doing wrong. Like, you know, be very forthright, get into the details, you know, be willing to be uncomfortable, but then always end with a well, let's just take a step back. I mean, yes. look at the opportunity we have ahead of us. Look how qualified our team is and look how much momentum we have and look what the world's going to look like in the future. Like, is anyone better positioned than us to make that so? You have to have that balance. Transparency is one of the keys to being a great people-first leader. Another thing that's valuable, being able to reflect inward and see if you're the one creating the problem. Have you ever had to assess if you were maybe a part of, of a problem or contributing to a behavioral pattern that you thought maybe wasn't healthy? Oh, sure. I mean, I've been the part of, I've been a part of many problems. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you want to have an atmosphere where you have people that can tell you what you're doing wrong. And, uh, you know, there've been times where uh, I have overstepped the boundaries on, you know, my design team needing a process where they can kind of go through a lot of iterations and have some space to explore different paths without having to defend some of the decisions they've made, you know, that are only half baked. And I love being involved with that process. And as a result, you know, I can feel like I'm being, you know, thoughtful and helpful and they can feel like I'm being, uh, you know, disruptive. And, uh, and so the, you know, over the years, I mean, there've been many confrontations. I actually love teams that can kind of debate not only product direction, but also the roles that each other is playing and mm. what's working and what's not working. Because if you can do that and actually know that it's part of the process of the company becoming better, then, I mean, you're in the top 1%. Right. Because this stuff always exists. I mean, people do offensive or non-helpful things all the time. And usually it's not intentional. Usually it's, it's just right. coming from a standpoint of I'm insecure or I'm afraid of something or I'm overexerting something because I'm not, you know, I don't have confidence in something or whatever. We just have to talk about it. I, I completely agree. Now, when you are advising or chatting with with first time founders or or entrepreneurs who are younger in their careers, and you see them like you, you know, being on the outside of their company, you see them getting in their own way, and they can't see it to, to save their lives. What advice do you have to help them illuminate maybe what some of those those challenges that they are contributing to are? First of all, very few people who observe this say something. You know, unfortunately, most investors or advisors or even board members don't feel incentivized to kind of stir up the pot and potentially alienate the founder with right. you know, difficult, difficult to swallow feedback. But you have to, I mean, you have to try. And I don't find it easy, um, but I really push myself to say, listen, you know, I, you know, you got to couch it with the positive as well. But uh, do you, is it helpful for you to hear like some of the things that I'm seeing that you know, I, I think could be done a bit differently or better? I mean, is this, does it helpful? Is it helpful to have some outside data points? 
And, you know, usually you'll always hear yes. And then the, and then you have to proceed to say like, listen, what I was seeing was this, or what I would have expected was here, you know, this, but I actually saw something completely different. And I'm just trying to reconcile this in my mind. It could be about the way that they interacted. I mean, there was a, there are co-founders of a company that I ended up investing in that I was working with. And I was also introducing them to other investors and, uh, and I noticed in my conversations with them and also in some other conversations that other investors had that one, like always spoke over the other. And it's just like, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And it was so yeah. frustrating to me to not, it would be horrible if they didn't know that they were coming across this way. And so I did, you know, I did share it with them very bluntly and, you know, and they were like, it was one of those epiphanies for them. You know, they didn't really yeah. see it. Now, how is giving feedback to a founder or a, an entrepreneur different than giving feedback to somebody on your own team? Is it similar or is it different because of the power dynamic shift? Yeah, I think there is a difference. There is a difference in it because I mean, at the end of the day, the founder can do whatever the hell they want uh, right. with, with your feedback or as someone on your team you know, they now know you're measuring them on this and then your eye is on it and it's going to likely impact their performance as you see it right. uh, and maybe even compensation. So there is, there's got to be a difference there somewhere, but I actually, you know, my approach on both is very similar, which is I'm a partner of the people that I work with and they're a partner of mine. And, uh, and by the way, I also try to always ask for feedback when I give the feedback too. Sometimes I even ask for it first because then it's easier for them to then receive it if they've just given some to you. Right. But in the spirit of, you know, in the spirit of us working together better and um, like, what, what can I be doing differently to, you know, either clear the path for you, help you be more empowered to get this stuff done, you know, just give me some tips and then they'll likely say, oh, and how about me? Uh, and <laughs> you, you should not hold back. The world of COVID has absolutely helped us crystallize or prioritize this need to make decisions without all of the information. From your perspective in, in leading your teams um, within the Adobe organization, outside of the obvious of working remotely, has the pandemic had any meaningful effects on your company? You know, I've been thinking a lot about a lot about what's going on here because in some weird ways, there have been a lot of productivity gains we've all made in all of our businesses over the last decade or more mm -hmm. from the new technologies and the new practices that we've adopted. But of that productivity that we've gained by all these you know, new ways of doing things, we haven't realized all of it. We've only realized part mm -hmm. of it. There's a lot of unrealized productivity gain from all the new ways we work and the new tech. And the reason it's unrealized is because there are holdouts in the form of people who continue to email even though they're Slack. The people right. who continue to meet every Thursday just because it's Thursday, not realizing that there's a stand-up or that it's actually nothing actionable ever comes of this meeting. There's just a lot of stuff that we have held yeah. on to as holdouts. And, and, and all of us are guilty of this that have actually gotten in the way of realizing the full productivity gain of what tech has enabled us to do. And in some ways, COVID as a crisis has forced us to refactor mm -hmm. massively. So suddenly it's like all, all hiring frozen, like no one knows what's going on tomorrow or next week or next month. And so you're really, there's like a massive, great refactoring happening right now across every industry. And I believe that in that process, everyone is actually mining the unrealized productivity gain that we've been kind of accruing for years. And so yeah. you could actually argue that coming out of this big knock on wood, 
sooner than later, we will all maybe be a step function more productive um, in some weird way. I mean, maybe margins will go up um, because a lot of the inefficiencies that just lingered in the system because no one had the incentive to confront them are suddenly eliminated. And so that is actually something that I am thinking a lot about and seeing some evidence of in the way our teams work. This makes a ton of sense to me. We're seeing an emphasis put on the partnership between HR and leaders throughout all types of crises. Unless you were alive in 1918, we haven't experienced a global health crisis at this level. And many haven't experienced the civil unrest in the 50s and 60s. Leaders and HR people are trying to quickly pivot to provide support for their employees in a time where nothing is certain. And some of these changes are things people in the HR community have been talking about for years. Flexible and remote policies, four-day work weeks, and programs that are designed to support people more holistically are just the tip of the iceberg. Have there been any shifts in your culture that you are really excited to bring with you where you're like, we ain't going back on this. I'm taking this with me. I think the um, willingness to have difficult conversations remotely Mm-hmm. You know, it's just such an unlock for productivity and decisiveness and, and, and just like not making teams wait. So I obviously hope to bring that, um, even though some folks would say that those sensitive conversations should still happen um, in person. I think also the level of transparency around crisis management, yeah. you know, why why do we only do that in crisis management of this magnitude? You know, why don't we bring that transparency to other thought processes and decisions? I mean, typically when you're making a change in an organization, everyone is very tight-lipped and there's like a very totally. you know, cascade moment where everything comes out. But in, this, in, a, in a crisis, typically everyone is ambient and everyone's in like, you know, they even call it the, the situation room or, you know, the war room or whatever. Yeah. And like, why don't, we, why don't we have the benefits of that more readily, you know, more often? I think it's, I think it's a great sentiment. Um, and I, I agree. We're going we're gonna to end this with a few rapid fire questions. Um, three questions very quickly. Don't overthink it. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm like, I don't even know. Oh, is, is a veggie dog a sandwich? <laughs> is a tofu dog a sandwich? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, the answer is no. Zoom or phone call? Zoom. Mac Paint or HyperCard? Ooh, HyperCard. <laughs> nice. Okay, the the last few here uh, won't be so easy. One we have already touched upon, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, Company culture, sports team, or family? Ultimately, sports team. Now, what is your favorite interview question and why? Well, I I think it has to do with what someone's interests are and what they did about it. And I think the reason is because that is a measure of initiative. And Mm -hmm. I've always believed that hiring people with initiative surpasses your expectations far more than hiring people with experience. If you were to ask yourself that question, would you hire you? Depends <laughs> for what job. Um, <laughs> depends Fair. for what job. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I am, you know, I've, I've gotten by more on initiative than experience in my life for sure. Okay, last one. And this is my personal favorite interview question that I ask of potential future employers. Hmm. When was the last time you wanted something so badly it hurt? Hmm. Interesting. It may have been at the, uh, at the point where I decided to write, uh, my latest book. It it was the culmination of just years of writing things down and thinking about the connections between them. And, uh, and I just told myself prior to that, that I would never write another book and I didn't want to do that. (laughs) Um, but then suddenly something flipped and I just really wanted to make it happen. And, um, 
And it was not easy to do so given the climate of what I was doing in my day job and what I was going through. But I, I wanted it you know, so badly it hurt. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you for answering. We're going to end with one final question. And this is not rapid fire at yep. all. But you know, given, given our conversation around the pandemic, uh, what advice would you give to founders and people leaders out there trying to make sense of things? How can they use this as an opportunity to build a better organization in this next chapter? Well, I think that we know from just a lot of research now that adversity brings teams closer, that it builds character. I mean, we all know all the cliches around what crisis does. And, um, and we've also all met people later in their career who all come, you know, when you ask them what really made them who they are, it's oftentimes a difficult period in their career. They don't cite the year where everything went well. They cite the year where everything kind of went to shit. And so here we are. Um, this is a very crazy world right now. There's just a lot of despair and sadness. In fact, we could just be sad all day. I mean, all of us have known people who've been affected and yet we have to kind of try to grow from this. And, uh, you know, and I know that if, you know, with the energy we have left to pay attention and be students right now, um, is, uh, you know, it's, it's really like a once in a lifetime opportunity to some degree. It's weird to put it that way, but it's true. It's true. It's, I think, I think that's the kind of innate curiosity you have to kind of have and then apply and get your team to buy into it in order to make the most of this. I love that. I, I think that's not only is it, it beautiful um, and eloquent, but I, it also is very parallel to what you describe in making a great team and being a great leader. You have to show up and, and be you know very sober about what's happening in the moment, but continue to have the ability to look forward and be really positive about the, the future. Otherwise, screw it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. I am so grateful to have this this time spent together. And I am so looking forward to watching all of these things play out for you. And I, I really hope that you can take some of these and, and amplify them even further. I think there's some really great stuff in here. So thank you. Listen, thank you, Caitlin, for having me. And this is awesome and proud to be involved. And to you, the listener, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of All Hands brought to you by Lattice. I'm your host, Caitlin Holloway. This episode was produced by Pod People, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, and Samantha Gatsik. Special thanks to Annette Cardwell. Learn more about how Lattice can help your business stay people-focused at Lattice.com or find us on Twitter at LatticeHQ. Don't forget to subscribe to All Hands wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time. Thank you.